Chapter 2.4 of the 9-11 Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The 9-11 Commission Report, Chapter 2.4. Building an Organization, Declaring War on the United States, 1992-1996. through 1996. Bin Laden began delivering diatribes against the United States before he left Saudi Arabia. He continued to do so after he arrived in Sudan. In early 1992, the al-Qaeda leadership issued a fatwa calling for jihad against the western occupation of Islamic lands. Specifically singling out U.S. forces for attack, the language resembled that which would appear in Bin Laden's public fatwa in August 1996. In ensuing weeks, Bin Laden delivered an often repeated lecture on the need to cut off the head of the snake. By this time, Bin Laden was well-known and a senior figure among Islamist extremists, especially those in Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, and the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region. Still, he was just one among many diverse terrorist barons. Some of Bin Laden's close comrades were more peers than subordinates. For example, Usama Asmurai, also known as Wali Khan, worked with Bin Laden in the early 1980s and helped him in the Philippines and in Tajikistan. The Egyptian spiritual guide based in New Jersey, the blind sheik, whom bin Laden admired, was also in the network. Among sympathetic peers in Afghanistan were a few of the warlords still fighting for power in Abu Zubaydah, who helped operate a popular terrorist training camp near the border with Pakistan. There were also rootless but experienced operatives, such as Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who, though not necessarily formal members of someone else's organization, were traveling around the world and joining in projects that were supported by or linked to bin Laden, the blind sheik, or their associates. In now analyzing the terrorist programs carried out by members of this network, it would be misleading to apply the label al-Qaeda operations too often in these early years. Yet it would also be misleading to ignore the significance of these connections. And in this network, bin Laden's agenda stood out. While his allied Islamist groups were focused on local battles, such as those in Egypt, Algeria, Bosnia, or Chechnya, bin Laden concentrated on attacking the far enemy, the United States. Attacks Known and Suspected After U.S. troops deployed to Somalia in late 1992, al-Qaeda leaders formulated a fatwa demanding their eviction. In December, bombs exploded at two hotels in Aden where U.S. troops routinely stopped en route to Somalia, killing two but no Americans. The perpetrators are reported to have belonged to a group from southern Yemen headed by a Yemeni member of bin Laden's Islamic Army Shura. Some in the group had trained at an al-Qaeda camp in Sudan. Al-Qaeda leaders set up a Nairobi cell and used it to send weapons and training to the Somali warlords battling U.S. forces, an operation directly supervised by al-Qaeda's military leader. Scores of trainers flowed to Somalia over the ensuing months, including most of the senior members and weapons training experts of al-Qaeda's military committee. These trainers were later heard boasting that their assistance led to the October 1993 shootdown of two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters by members of a Somali militia group and to the subsequent withdrawal of U.S. forces in early 1994. In November 1995, a car bomb exploded outside a Saudi-U.S. joint facility in Riyadh for training the Saudi National Guard. Five Americans and two officials from India were killed. The Saudi government arrested four perpetrators who admitted being inspired by bin Laden. They were promptly executed. 
Though nothing proves that bin Laden ordered this attack, U.S. intelligence subsequently learned that al-Qaeda leaders had decided a year earlier to attack a U.S. target in Saudi Arabia and had shipped explosives to the peninsula for this purpose. Some of bin Laden's associates later took credit. In June 1996, an enormous truck bomb detonated in the Kobar Towers residential complex in Dharan, Saudi Arabia, that housed U.S. Air Force personnel. Nineteen Americans were killed, and 372 were wounded. The operation was carried out principally, perhaps exclusively, by Saudi Hezbollah, an organization that had received support from the government of Iran. While the evidence of Iranian involvement is strong, there are also signs that al-Qaeda played some role, as yet unknown. In this period, other prominent attacks in which bin Laden's involvement is at best cloudy are the 1993 bombings of the World Trade Center, a plot that same year to destroy landmarks in New York, and the 1995 Manila Air plot to blow up a dozen U.S. airliners over the Pacific. Details on these plots appear in Chapter 3. Another scheme revealed that bin Laden sought the capability to kill on a mass scale. His business aides received word that a Sudanese military officer, who had been a member of the previous government cabinet, was offering to sell weapons-grade uranium. After a number of contacts were made through intermediaries, the officer set the price at $1.5 million, which did not deter bin Laden. Al-Qaeda representatives asked to inspect the uranium and were shown a cylinder about three feet long, and one thought he could pronounce it genuine. Al-Qaeda apparently purchased the cylinder, then discovered it to be bogus. But while the effort failed, it shows what bin Laden and his associates hoped to do. One of the Al-Qaeda representatives explained his mission. It's easy to kill more people with uranium. Bin Laden seemed willing to include in the Confederation terrorists from almost every corner of the Muslim world. His vision mirrored that of Sudan's Islamist leader, Tarabi, who convened a series of meetings under the label Popular Arab and Islamic Conference around the time of bin Laden's arrival in that country. Delegations of violent Islamist extremists came from all the groups represented in bin Laden's Islamic Army Shura. Representatives also came from organizations such as the Palestine Liberation Organization, Hamas, and Hezbollah. Tarabi sought to persuade Shiites and Sunnis to put aside their divisions and join against the common enemy. In late 1991 or 1992, discussions in Sudan between al-Qaeda and Iranian operatives led to an informal agreement to cooperate in providing support, even if only training, for actions carried out primarily against Israel and the United States. Not long afterward, senior al-Qaeda operatives and trainers traveled to Iran to receive training in explosives. In the fall of 1993, another such delegation went to the Beka Valley in Lebanon for further training in explosives as well as in intelligence and security. Bin Laden reportedly showed particular interest in learning how to use truck bombs such as the one that had killed 241 U.S. Marines in Lebanon in 1983. The relationship between al-Qaeda and Iran demonstrated that Sunni-Shia divisions did not necessarily pose an insurmountable barrier to cooperation in terrorist operations. As will be described in Chapter 7, al-Qaeda contacts with Iran continued in ensuing years. Bin Laden was also willing to explore possibilities for cooperation with Iraq, even though Iraq's dictator, Saddam Hussein, had never had an Islamist agenda save for his opportunistic pose as a defender of the faithful against crusaders during the Gulf War of 1991. 
Moreover, bin Laden had in fact been sponsoring anti-Saddam Islamists in Iraqi Kurdistan and sought to attract them into his Islamic army. To protect his own ties with Iraq, Tarabi reportedly brokered an agreement that bin Laden would stop supporting activities against Saddam. Bin Laden apparently honored this pledge, at least for a time, although he continued to aid a group of Islamist extremists operating in part of Iraq, Kurdistan, outside of Baghdad's control. In the late 1990s, these extremist groups suffered major defeats by Kurdish forces. In 2001, with bin Laden's help, they reformed into an organization called Ansar al-Islam. There are indications that by then, the Iraqi regime tolerated and may have even helped Ansar al-Islam against a common Kurdish enemy. With the Sudanese regime acting as intermediary, bin Laden himself met with a senior Iraqi intelligence officer in Khartoum in late 1994 or early 1995. Bin Laden is said to have asked for space to establish training camps, as well as assistance in procuring weapons, but there is no evidence that Iraq responded to this request. As described below, the ensuing years saw additional efforts to establish connections. Sudan becomes a doubtful haven. Not until 1998 did al-Qaeda undertake a major terrorist operation of its own, in large part because bin Laden lost his base in Sudan. Ever since the Islamist regime came to power in Khartoum, the United States and other Western governments had pressed it to stop providing a haven for terrorist organizations. Other governments in the region, such as those of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and even Libya, which were targets of some of these groups, added their own pressure. At the same time, the Sudanese regime began to change. Though Tarabi had been its inspirational leader, General Omar al-Bashir, president since 1989, had never been entirely under his thumb. Thus, as outside pressures mounted, Bashir's supporters began to displace those of Tarabi. The attempted assassination in Ethiopia of Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak in June 1995 appears to have been a tipping point. The would-be killers, who came from the Egyptian Islamic group, had been sheltered in Sudan and helped by bin Laden. When the Sudanese refused to hand over three individuals identified as involved in the assassination plot, the UN Security Council passed a resolution criticizing their inaction and eventually sanctioned Khartoum in April 1996. A clear signal to bin Laden that his days in Sudan were numbered came when the government advised him that it intended to yield to Libya's demands to stop giving sanctuary to its enemies. Bin Laden had to tell the Libyans who had been part of his Islamic army that he could no longer protect them and that they had to leave the country. Outraged, several Libyan members of al-Qaeda and the Islamic army Shura renounced all connections with him. Bin Laden also began to have serious money problems. International pressure on Sudan, together with strains in the world economy, hurt Sudan's currency. Some of bin Laden's companies ran short of funds. As Sudanese authorities became less obliging, normal costs of doing business increased. Saudi pressures on the bin Laden family also probably took some toll. In any case, bin Laden found it necessary both to cut back his spending and to control his outlays more closely. He appointed a new financial manager whom his followers saw as miserly. Money problems proved costly to bin Laden in other ways. Jamal Ahmed al-Fadl, a Sudanese-born Arab, had spent time in the United States and had been recruited for the Afghan war through the Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn. He had joined al-Qaeda and taken the oath of fealty to bin Laden, serving as one of his business agents. Then bin Laden discovered that Fadl had skimmed about $110,000, and he asked for restitution. 
Fadl resented receiving a salary of only $500 a month, while some of the Egyptians in Al-Qaeda were given $1,200 a month. He defected and became a star informant for the United States. Also testifying about Al-Qaeda in a U.S. court was Lossain Kerchou, who told of breaking with bin Laden because of bin Laden's professed inability to provide him with money when his wife needed a cesarean section. In February 1996, Sudanese officials began approaching officials from the United States and other governments, asking what actions of theirs might ease foreign pressure. In secret meetings with Saudi officials, Sudan offered to expel bin Laden to Saudi Arabia and asked the Saudis to pardon him. U.S. officials became aware of these secret discussions, certainly by March. Saudi officials apparently wanted bin Laden expelled from Sudan. They had already revoked his citizenship, however, and would not tolerate his presence in their country. And bin Laden may have no longer felt safe in Sudan, where he had already escaped at least one assassination attempt that he believed to have been the work of the Egyptian or Saudi regimes, or both. In any case, on May 19, 1996, bin Laden left Sudan, significantly weakened despite his ambitions and organizational skills. He returned to Afghanistan. End of chapter 2.4 Recording by Alex Jacoby